I will. Um, good morning. Uh, today, we're going to be reading from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Second Chronicles, chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, as Matt has already remind you, reminded you, what we're doing is reading through the Bible together as a congregation, and mostly we're going through this alone in our various places, houses, work places, whatever. Uh, but on Sunday, what we do is we come together and we, we don't walk the path alone. We stop, we sit down, and we rest, and we look out at the vista together. And so that's what we're here to do today. And this week, in a little bit, a couple of days uh, of next week, um, or I guess Sunday is the beginning of this week. So this week, we end the New Testament, and at least according to the Hebrew order of the books. And if, and if you would pause with me for a while, just for a few minutes, and let me help you look out through the trees of the trail that we've been walking on this week and see this radiant valley below, I think it'll take your breath away. I mean... It has mine. It's, it's marvelous. Now, we're in the book of Second Chronicles, and the account that we have in chapter 7 is the pinnacle of the history of Israel, which is the completion of the temple of God. And anyone who saw this structure as it existed back in that day would have had their breath taken away just as we are about to. Like, it was a magnificent structure, unparalleled in majesty with any other structure that had ever been built in the history of Israel. And it wasn't just the architecture that reduced the people to awe. It was the fact that God had chosen that structure as his dwelling place. God had chosen to dwell among human beings. Like, he had an address. It was the temple in Jerusalem. And what we're about to see in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles is basically this. If you want to know the goodness of God, look in the temple. And isn't that the question everyone really wants answered? Like, a lot of people believe that God exists. But the question that separates the wheat from the chaff is this. Supposing God exists, is he good? And that's a question a lot of people have, a trouble, have trouble answering yes to. And, you know, they certainly have their data. Like, you look around at the earth, at the world, at history, like the innumerable amounts of suffering that have come to us. You look at the trials and tribulations of your own life, and if God is all-powerful, we reason, he could correct all these evils. But supposing he is all-powerful and yet allows these things to exist, the only conclusion 
a person could reach is, well, then he must not be good. He must not have compassion enough, love enough, charity enough to make these evils cease. And that is a powerful argument, by the way. But what this passage is going to teach us is that if we want to know whether God is good, then there is a place that he has proven that his answer is yes to that, and that place is the temple. If we've come to the conclusion that God cannot be good because like we're looking around and we're, we're taking in all this data, if we've come to the conclusion that God is not good because of all of that suffering, we are looking in the wrong place for our data. So we must fix our eyes on the temple. And I want to show you what that means under three headings. Number one, the display of God's goodness in the temple. Number two, the condition of God's goodness in the temple. And then number three, the fulfillment of God's goodness in the temple. The display, the condition, and the fulfillment. So number one, the display of God's goodness. Before we get into chapter seven, we actually need to just real quickly get the context of the first six chapters of this book. Essentially, David has it in mind to build a temple for God. He longs for it. He wishes he could do it. He expresses this desire to God. But God says, no, you cannot build a temple for me because you have been a man of war. There's blood on your hands. Therefore, I will choose your son Solomon to build this temple. And so David spends the waning years of his life essentially preparing for Solomon to build the temple, gathering up all the materials for construction. And once David has died, Solomon begins to build, and over the course of several years, he completes it. And then chapters 5 and 6 tell us the story of the day that the temple was completed, the dedication day. Solomon stands in the court and offers a prayer to the Lord, pleading with him that the Lord would be present in this structure. And not only present, but attentive to his people's prayers. The prayers that are made in this place. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7. Solomon has finished praying. Chapter 7, verse 1, Second Chronicles. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So Solomon prays, and then the Lord answers with fire and glory. And notice the object of the Lord's fire. This is very important. Notice the object of the Lord's fire. It says that he consumed the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. Keep that in mind. Now, how do the people respond to this fire and this glory? It says in verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks, saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So when the people saw the fire of God, they bowed their faces to the ground and worshiped. And what was the content of their worship? What did they actually say? For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, we've 
been reading the Old Testament, and maybe you remember that this response is remarkably different from their ancestors and how they responded to the fire of God descending on Mount Sinai. Remember that in Exodus? Um, If we go back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, we see this. Exodus 19, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And he skipped to verse, chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So in Exodus, the Lord descends in fire and the people's response was terror. And their bodies were shaking with it. And their conclusion is, We don't want to hear the voice of the Lord because if we do, it will kill us. But then go forward in time about a millennium or so and the Lord descends in fire on the newly constructed temple and the people's response is the complete opposite. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So what's the difference? Well, the people at the foot of Mount Sinai were terrified because They had just received the law, the Ten Commandments, from the Lord. And receiving those commandments was an occasion for terror because they knew they had already broken them. And who knew when the fire from the mountain would come down and consume them? But here at the dedication of the temple, what does the fire consume? It consumes the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. And this is a sign to them of God's mercy, of his forgiveness of their sins. From the time of Moses, God had instituted animal sacrifice as a means by which he could dwell among his people and not consume them. The animal would pay for the sins of the people with its own blood, and in this vicarious exchange, the people would be made clean by the mercies of God. And so when the fire comes down, the fire of God, and consumes these burnt offerings and not the people, their only response has to be, oh, the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And from there, we actually have more evidences of the goodness of the Lord, but there is a turn in the story. And that brings us to our second point, the condition of God's goodness in the temple. So we see later in the chapter that that the Lord answers Solomon's prayer from chapter 6, and this is how he answers it. You see it in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Like, can you imagine that? It's astonishing. God has said in that answer to Solomon's prayer in no uncertain terms that whenever his people pray in this house or even towards this house, he will hear their prayers. His attention is fixed on this one spot. His presence is located there. And if you want to guarantee that the Lord is near and that he hears your prayers, then the temple is the place to be. And that's astonishing. Like, I'm sure that all of us have had the experience of, like, of praying and, and having really no certainty that God actually hears us? Like, are we just talking to ourselves? Is he really there? We start to doubt ourselves. And I'm further certain that all of us have probably had the experience of what felt like the absence of God's presence. Some of us have walked for long seasons without any discernible sense that the Lord is actually with us. We believe he is, of course, because... You know, we're orthodox and we have right beliefs and, you know, he promised that he would be. But if that goes on long enough, it can be the occasion for despair. But in both of those cases, like think about this, in both of those cases, can you imagine how heartening it would be to have a place that you could go, a physical location where you were guaranteed Fully assured, God is here. He hears my prayers here. I don't know about every other place in the world, but at least here on this Temple Mount, I know that he is here, and I know that he hears my prayers. Like, that is enough to take your breath away. But that's what the temple was. That was God's dwelling place on earth. He says, my eyes and my heart will be here for all time. But here's where the good news becomes slightly more tenuous. The presence of God in the temple is not a given. It is, in fact, conditional. And that's clear as the Lord continues speaking to Solomon. Picking up in verse 17. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house, the temple, that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out 
of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster upon them. The Lord promised to be present in his temple as long as his people walk in his ways, as long as they obey his laws, as long as they humble themselves and repent of their sins. And if they don't, If they take up the worship of idols and other gods, then the Lord has this frightening pronouncement for them. He says, I will destroy this temple. I'll cast it out of my sight. It'll become a byword among the nations. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine like a greater incentive for righteous living than this. That the promise of God's presence, the promise of his attention, the promise that he will hear me in a fixed location on earth. I can't imagine a better incentive to know that there was a place where I and my people could go to cry out to God with the assurance that he hears us and has promised to forgive our sins. What greater goodness could we long for in this life? But if you've been reading along with us, you know the story by now. The people of Israel were fundamentally incapable, incapable, excuse me, of upholding the condition of righteousness. Every one of them was born into sin, found themselves enticed by the gods of other nations, and they gave themselves to those gods and forsook the Lord their God. And the rest of the book of Chronicles tells the story of the increasingly wicked kings who ruled over Israel and led their people into idolatry and led their people to break the covenant. But what's astonishing is that even though God promises Solomon right here, I will destroy the temple. I will bring my presence up from the earth at that location. He does not bring that judgment upon them immediately. Instead, he sends prophets to them over the course of centuries, messengers of God to preach in the streets and call the people back to repentance and call the people to put away their idols, lest the judgment of God come upon them. It's astonishing mercy. But in the end, the people did. They loved their idols more than they loved the Lord their God. And so in chapter 36 of Second Chronicles, the time for their judgment had come. Chapter 36, starting in verse 11. Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah. Zedekiah was 21 years old 
when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And as the leadership goes, so goes the people. Verse 14, all the officers and the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem, the temple. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. No one can fault the goodness of the Lord here. He, he tried for generations to bring his people back to him, but they scoffed at his prophets. They stiffened their necks against the Lord, and that went on until at last there was no remedy, and the wrath of God could no longer be contained by the sacrifices because the people refused to put their hope in the mercy that God offered them, and thus the dam broke and the wrath of their judgment came pouring forth. Pick it up in verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his princes. All these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. So at long last, the judgment of God had come. The temple was destroyed and it was done. And we're told here that, yes, it, it was the Chaldeans who did this. But more fundamentally, we're told it's the very hand of God himself, just like he promised Solomon in chapter 7. The place of God's dwelling on earth, the place where his eyes and his heart were fixed for all time, fixed to do good to his people, the place of mercy and sacrifice and forgiveness was gone. And that is how the Old Testament ends. The story of the Old Testament is not a comedy. It is a tragedy in every way. And that brings us to our third point, the fulfillment of God's goodness in the temple. Now, even though we just read through pretty close to the end of the final verses of the Old Testament, that's actually not chronologically the end of the story. 
The books of Nehemiah and Ezra actually occur after this moment, and in these books we're told the story of the return of God's people to their decimated land. And it tells the story of their efforts to rebuild. And then Ezra, for our purposes specifically, <clears throat> is the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Because as the people have been exiled for 70 years, God continued to send prophets to them to give them hope that he would not utterly forsake them. And one of the main themes of the prophetic teaching during this period was that when the people would return, their temple, God's dwelling place, would be restored. And the thing that made the chastened people of God sit up and raise their heads in hope at that pronouncement was this. Not only would the Lord lead the effort to rebuild the temple, but this new temple would exceed Solomon's temple in glory and beauty. And that was almost beyond belief. Nothing could ever compare with Solomon's temple in terms of beauty and majesty, and yet the promise was that the new temple would far exceed it. So you have to imagine what this would have meant to the Israelites who sat on the banks of the rivers in Babylon, weeping for their sins and for their judgment. Like, take heart. The Lord will restore the temple, and it will be even better than before. And when Ezra returned with the host of Israelites, the, the Israelites, to, in order to rebuild the temple, it looked as if God's promise was coming to pass. But when they had completed the temple, this is so interesting. Um, when they completed the temple in Ezra 3, something very strange occurs. They've completed it. The, the construction is done. And on the dedication day, it says that all the young people, all the people who had been born in exile and had returned, all the young people raised a great shout of joy and, and praise and, and rejoicing at the sight of this new temple. And why not? The temple <clears throat> had been restored. The promise had been kept. But it also says that there was a small contingent of old men. These are men who were born before the exile, who had seen Solomon's temple. And it says when they saw the new temple, as, as all the young people were rejoicing and shouting so that the ground shook, when the old men saw it, they wept. They raised their voices in lamentation. Why? Because unlike the young people, they had seen the old temple, and when they saw this new temple, they knew because they had been listening to the prophets. They had been listening to the promises. The new temple will exceed Solomon's in all of its glory and majesty. And when they saw the new temple, they wept because this wasn't it. The new temple did not exceed Solomon's temple in glory. And even so, with this new temple rebuilt, the Old Testament ends, excuse me, the Old, I say Old, Old Testament ends with the failure of the temple. And that leads all of us who read it, that leaves us a lingering question. 
And, and it leaves everybody who was there, the old men who wept at the new temple. It leads all of us to ask a question, will the temple ever be restored? Will the temple that exceeds the glory of Solomon's, the majesty of Solomon's, will that ever be restored? And that is the lingering question at the end of the Old Testament. And that question is what makes it so magnificent when Jesus shows up hundreds of years later on the scene. And watch what he says in Matthew chapter 12. Just... mm. So, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words... When the priests are in the presence of the temple, they are permitted to profane the Sabbath because they are creating the occasion for the people of God to worship. But the Pharisees actually have a very strong argument here. Your disciples, they're saying, are plucking grain and eating it, which is somewhat akin to reaping and harvesting on the Sabbath, which is work, and they're nowhere close to the temple. They're out in a field. There's there's no argument to be made here. Even if you could somehow draw a line, it's like, yeah, they're doing priestly work. First of all, they're not priests. Second of all, they're nowhere near the temple. So they've got him. But then verse 6, he says, but I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus Christ at this moment claims that he himself is the new temple, the temple that all the prophets spoke of, the temple that exceeded Solomon's temple in all of its beauty and glory. And here is where we see the goodness of God clearly displayed in the temple. The Lord had said, that the temple was the place where his eyes and his heart would be forever. And that made the temple a place of prayer. He promised that whenever prayer is made in this place, he would hear it and he would act. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, In my name, I will do it. Jesus Christ is the new temple because Jesus Christ is now the place of prayer for his people. But the temple was also a place of sacrifice and mercy and forgiveness. Remember how the people saw the fire come down and consume the sacrifice and their response was, for the Lord is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And their hearts erupted in that kind of praise because the Lord's fire consumed the sacrifice and not them as they feared that he would do at Mount Sinai. And Jesus, too, is this new temple. He also offered a sacrifice, a better sacrifice than had ever yet been offered. And here we come back to Hebrews again, chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting... 
that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for his, first for his own sins and then for those of his people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Not only is Christ the temple, but he, is the, but he himself is the sacrificial offering given for the forgiveness of sins within the temple. And on that day when he hung from his hands and his feet, bleeding, atoning blood, crying out for forgiveness for his enemies, the fire of God's wrath against your sins and against mine was fully vented on the sacrifice, fully vented on Jesus Christ himself. It came down from heaven, as it were, and consumed him. And when we see God consuming the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place, when we see Jesus Christ not being aloof from all the suffering in the world, but joining in the suffering of the world, bearing it upon his very body, when we see that, our only response can be, for the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. <laughs> and after Christ was consumed, the presence of God on earth was extinguished, just as it was when God destroyed the temple in the Old Testament. But three days later, the temple was raised to life, never to die again. And this time, there was no mixture in the crowd. If the old men, if the old men of Ezra's day had seen this temple, they would have raised their voices in glad songs of salvation, with loud voices echoing throughout the earth. Ah, oh, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. But you and I have never seen this temple with our eyes. There's a few people in the history of the world who laid their eyes on Jesus, who saw this temple, but not us. And yet we long to. And that longing will, <laughs> it will one day be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 21, after the end of all things, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Do you know what our response will be on that day when we at long last behold the great temple of God in Jesus Christ? We will fall on our faces and say, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
And so if you want to see the goodness of God, you must look at his temple. God will one day bring an end to all of our suffering, but until then, Jesus Christ, the very temple of God, the very sacrifice of God, has given us the forgiveness of sins. And he has secured God's loving attention so that any prayer we offer in his name is heard and seen and acted upon. And he has given us a hope for the future. One day, our eyes shall behold that temple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we that you should love us so thoroughly, so completely? Who are we that you should consume Christ for our salvation? Maybe the better question is, who are you that you would do such a thing? You must be very fond of us to grant us such grace. And so I pray that you would grant us the love, a spirit of worship, so that we may walk in your ways and rejoice in the coming temple of God. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We come to the table of God now to eat and to drink the symbols of the sacrifice of Christ. These are there to help us remember what was accomplished on that day, and these are there to remind us that even in this eating, as the gathered people of God, He is present with us, with mercy and forgiveness. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. You may eat and you may drink. <laughs>